We've been moving through the book of Ephesians for probably what some of you guys think has been an eternity right now. It's been a while. It's because the book of Ephesians is not one of those books you just kind of drop into and drop out of. It's a book that's written to people that probably look a lot like us. We know there are people that were well-taught and well-trained. The Apostle Paul and others spent a considerable amount of time there with them. We know that they were a church that had a good understanding of doctrine. They had good leadership because the elders and their leadership is mentioned. The fact that they were able to deal with the false teachings in Scripture is pretty obvious because Jesus himself, when he's looking and reviewing the churches in the opening portions of the book of Revelation, says, hey guys, good job. In spite of all the good that can be said about the church in Ephesus, however, there's this underlying fault. And it's not one of those things that you see on the surface. In fact, it's not one of those things that's really obvious at all. In fact, if I think if anyone had looked at the church in Ephesus, they would have said, this is an amazing church. God is doing wonderful things. These are people that are well positioned to do big things in the kingdom for a long time. Except that you you can't hide from Jesus. And so Jesus shows up, and he looks at the church, and he said, guys, you're doing great, but you have a mortal problem. You have an issue that will destroy you. You've lost your first love. You've lost that passion, that intensity, that thing that draws you into doing crazy things. I think some of us probably remember that back when we were kids. That first love that you had, that's a, that's a, that's a chord that gets kind of plucked in our heart that maybe never quits resonating in some ways, right? Um, and, and Jesus said, hey guys, at some point, you guys just forgot that I want all of you. Every last bit. Paul has opened up in the last portion of the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and reminding us that God is trying to work in every one of us in this room this morning a three-step process, a three-step process that will actually radically change who we are. And it's not a problem, like sometimes we're like, I don't want to lose my, my identity. It's not that it changes the, the, the beautiful people that God created us to be, but it's a process of refining the bad stuff out of us. And we're all honest people here this morning. I think we can all sit back and be honest and say, you know what? There's a lot of good in my life. There's a lot of good in my personality. There's a lot of good about me, but there's also bad. There's things that need to change. There's things that I need to improve on. And, And Paul said, here's how it works. First of all, we put off or we take off, if you want to use that language, we take off that sinful nature, those sinful desires right? And, and that's, that's sometimes that first thing that's kind of obvious. You, you, you come to the Lord and you realize, you know what? <laughs> I'm wanting things that I really shouldn't want. And I'll bet we all can identify that with, with that this morning. We, we're attracted by some, to something that we really recognize we shouldn't be attracted to, and we don't even want to. Paul said, we, we got to put that off. We got to take that off. We've got to remove ourselves from that situation. Secondly, we begin a process of renewal in our minds, so, so God can't really come in and start changing things while we're still in the middle of the pig pen, right? The, the, the young man that was we call the prodigal son, he found himself in the middle of a mess, and it says that he came to his senses, and he got up, and he said, let me return to my father's home. And so he got out of the pig pen, he started to walk home, and it was then that God was able to meet him. There was a process of renewal that happens. And thirdly, we now put something on. And here's sometimes I think maybe where we we kind of drop the ball. I I think most of us realize and know, hey, (laughs) I need to take off this stuff that's not good. 
I need to remove from my life things that are bad. And I know I need to have a radical change of heart and mind. But Paul said we've got to replace it with something. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? He said that the guy who cleans his house of all the evil spirits and he dusts everything and it's perfectly empty and the evil spirit roams around and he comes back and he says, let me check on my old place and it's empty and swept clean. And he says, hey, <laughs> I'm going to move back and with seven of my buddies. God recognizes that we, we can't have a void spiritually in our life. And so the third part of that process is to put on a new self that's created after the likeness of God with true righteousness and holiness. Sometimes I think it's real easy for us to kind of take out the old and to say, God created me a new heart, and yet we don't start doing the kinds of things that that maintain that course of process. And so that's really what the rest of the book of Ephesians is about, is how do we put on this new person? How do we begin to live like Christ? How does that look? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, grab those if you wouldn't mind. Let's just go together to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're going to pick up verse number 25 or so. And I just want to read read the text that follows. McKay last week talked about and kind of introduced that idea of the new life and how we're called to look at the world differently. We're called to have a brand new lease on life. And for some of us this morning who spent a lot of time out away from the Lord, or maybe we didn't come up in a world where we knew Jesus, (laughs) that's a real real struggle sometimes. And yet we, we have this clear kind of line in the sand moment in our life, right? Where we're like, you know what? I was this and now I'm this. For some of us this morning, though, maybe we've come up in church, we've always kind of known the Lord, the influences of Christ and His, and His message of the gospel have always had an influence on in our life, and that line isn't quite as, as concrete for us, but we're all called, no matter where, what our backstory is, to start something brand new, and we start that in Jesus Christ. So look with me in verse 25. This starts off with the word therefore, and so it kind of just builds on everything that McKay talked about last week. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Apostle Paul is going to kind of go through a rapid-fire list of five things that we are to either take off and put on, or sometimes both of those together. And this morning, we're going to move quickly through this list. But these are five of maybe the quickest and easiest and most powerful transformations that God wants to create in every single life and in every single heart of all of us who are here today. And it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul chooses to start this list, inspired undoubtedly by the Holy Spirit, with the idea of speaking truth. And it's crazy because if we're really honest, there's not a lot of truth that is spoken in the world today, is there? I mean, 
There's a ton of jokes about that, right? If your wife or your husband comes and says, hey, do I look good in this, right? And, and everyone likes to laugh. Don't, don't answer that honestly, right? But that's just kind of a symptom of a bigger attitude that we have in the world. Last week, we were in Minnesota. And, um, and there's this thing in Minnesota called Minnesota Nice. Bruce knows about that. He grew up in Minnesota. It's this, this idea that, that everyone in Minnesota is nice, all right? And they are very nice, but what that really means is, is they're probably never going to give you a straight answer about anything. You like my new car? Yeah, it's very nice, even though they think it's terrible, right? They're never going to say something that might ruffle the feathers. Now, there's some of us in this room this morning that love to stir up dust and ruffle feathers, all right? Now, it's just in your nature. You, just, you enjoy it when people get kind of at each other. But most of us are people that like to avoid conflict if possible. Paul said, I want you guys to live this radically transformed, changed life. And that starts with having the ability to speak truth with your neighbor. There's so much that could be said. In fact, I guess we could probably preach an entire morning about just this concept right here. We won't do that this morning. But let me remind you of the reason why Paul says that we are to speak truth with our neighbor. He said, because you are the members of one body, of the same body. You belong to one another. It's easy for us, guys, to to just tell people what they want to hear. In fact, we live in a world today that has has kind of perfected that, haven't they? We, We tell people what they want to hear so we can get their votes. We tell people what they want to hear so we can get their money, their allegiance, their support. There's very few people in the world today that are telling people what is. There's a lot of reasons for that. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time this morning trying to crack this down. In fact, as I, as I, uh, as I was reading through this text, I, I just couldn't help but reminding you of what the Apostle Paul said in verses 20 and 21. He said, that is not the way you learned Christ. He's going to say that uh, repeatedly and in, in, in through this text. But he said, hey, guys, <laughs> I don't know about all of that. I know how the rest of the world works. I know how people think. I know how people attract attention and create allegiance. But that's not how Jesus works. And I was there with you. And that's not how you learned about Jesus. That is not how you learned Christ. Jesus had a unique ability And I've challenged you guys in this before, but I'll do it again because it never hurts. Jesus had a powerful and unique ability to speak truth with people in a way that they could receive it. He was seldom harsh and yet always honest. And Paul said, we, the church, we need to develop those abilities. We need to figure out how to speak truth with our neighbors. Zechariah, the eighth chapter, verses 16 and 17. (laughs) This is not a passage in the Bible or a book in the Bible. We generally reference that much, Zechariah 8. But but this is not a new theme. In fact, the Apostle Paul is really kind of quoting up something that most of the Jewish people would have known about. Zechariah writes this. He said, "These uh, these are the things that you shall do. These are God's commands to you, right? And the first one on that list is speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true for making peace. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. 
and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God said, I hate it when people are dishonest with one another. Now, if you're a person that's lived a life this morning, as I'm talking about this, you're probably like I am, and you're thinking to yourself, that's a great concept, Jason. I like the idea of honesty. But the last time that I was honest with somebody, right? the last time I told them what I really thought, I haven't talked to that person since, or didn't end well for me, or I was ostracized, or... Yes. But a loving community that's grounded in truth is our greatest open-handed offer to a world that's grasping for meaning in all the futility. McKay spent a good bit of time last week talking about how the world is chasing stuff that doesn't matter. And when you tell people what they want to hear simply because you know that you'll make a friend in a moment or you'll get a, 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 a dollar bill in your account or you'll get a vote on a ballot and you're intentionally hiding what is really true. And I think a lot of you guys pay attention to what's going on in the world and you know exactly exactly what's going on. No one is telling us what is really going on. And the world is desperately looking for somebody that will just be honest with them. Now remember that we've already talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Bible says that we must speak the truth with love. That is a learning curve for most of us. That is a difficult kind of thing. That's, that's a riding of the bicycle, if you will, right? We can't either be on the left hand or the right hand foot. We've got to figure out how to, to kind of balance that and move forward. But the world desperately needs to see that. You, you, you want to know why Jesus was so popular with people? Why the crowds gathered? You want to know why John the Baptist created such a, such a stir in such a short period of time? It's because both of these guys understood the importance of just being honest with people and allowing and honoring people's own free will to make the choices that they will make. When I think of people who did this well, I I can't help but think of Joshua and Caleb. They were two men of an entire generation of people that came out of the land of Egypt that would actually go into the promised land. If you remember that story, they were selected from their, their, their respective tribes as two of 12 spies that were going to go into the land of, of Canaan, right? And God had said, hey, I'm going to bring you here. There's all kind of miracles, all kind of cool stuff. They're right up against the border. And they, God said, or Moses said, we're going to send out some spies. We're going to check this place out. And so these guys go and they're checking out the land. And it is fantastic, right? If you remember, they, they, they come back with a, with a bunch of grapes on a stick between two guys. That's how big they were. This was a fantastic, wonderful paradise. Only one problem. There were giants and big cities and people who were there first and thought that they would like to stay there. And 10 of the guys looked at this and said, this is not doable. This is overwhelming. We are lost. Two of them spoke truth. Look with me in in Numbers 13. If you guys want to, I'll just read it to you. Numbers 13, 28 is where we're at. The people said that the people who live there are powerful and their cities are fortified and they're very large. We we even saw descendants of Anak there, giant race, right? We, We sing like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. I'm not here to talk about the spies in the land of Canaan, but man, you just can't 
you can't walk away from that text without pointing out something. The problem for 10 of these spies wasn't the walled cities, wasn't the descendants of Anak. It wasn't, it wasn't the challenges that was ahead of them. The problem for 10 of these guys that didn't exist for two of these guys is their own self-image. They said, we were like grasshoppers in our eyes. And you know what? There's nothing that spreads among a group of people with any more uh, rapid pace than negativity. I think Satan realizes that. I think he pours it out on the church sometimes. He pours that out in my life sometimes. I am as guilty of this as any of the rest of you guys. Human beings are negative biased creatures and we just love negativity, right? And so all of a sudden there's a big... There were no Cajuns there, but if there had been, they would have said there was a great thraka, all right? Because in Numbers 14 and verse 1, it says, that night all the people of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. Women were sobbing because it was impossible. Their husbands were going to die. Their kids were going to be lost. By morning, there was a large contingency of people that were ready to rebel, kill the leadership, and head back to Egypt, all because 10 guys walked into the land of Canaan and they weren't armed with the truth. The truth was they were never going to get that land. It wasn't about them and their abilities and their talents and their armies and their swords. It was about the Lord, right? In fact, and that's the cool part of the story. Numbers 14, verse number 7. Joshua and Caleb, um, they try to kind of get the people together. Joshua, or Caleb starts that in Numbers 13 and verse 30. He silences the people for Moses, and he said, we should go up and we should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Right? Here's an optimist. We, we got this, guys. Let's go, right? Numbers 14. They come back and they plead with the people again, and they said, the land that we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us. He will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. This is a part I want you guys to notice. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of that land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Sometimes we we kind of read through that story and we sing that little cute song, 10 were bad and two are good. I can never do the motions. I'm not coordinated enough, but you guys know the song, right? And, and, and we, we get the point, right? There were 10 guys that were like, ah, and two guys that were like, let's do this. But there's actually a very real philosophical difference between these two guys. And if you, if you look at that narrative, if you read the rest of that story, you realize that these are the only two guys of that whole generation that are actually going to cross that river. Everyone else, God said, you know what? You guys can just uh, go in circles out in the wilderness till you come home. I'm not going with you guys, but Joshua and Caleb, I'm with you. And here was the philosophical difference in these two guys. They recognized something. This is a truth that the church needs to know today because I think we spend so much time looking at the world and saying it's broken, it's a mess, the church is a mess. All those things are true. There were giants in the land. That was true. But here was the greater truth. And the greater truth was that God was with them. God was going to call them across that, that river. And with God is with you, the victory is yours. It wasn't about them. It was about God. You notice the positive attitude that these guys have. 
They mention God over and over again in their words. When you read through the text of the 10 spies, they don't mention God once because they were operating in their capacity. Joshua and Caleb were preparing to operate in God's capacity. We need Joshua and Caleb kind of leaders in the world today. We need people that can speak truth to people and let them know, you know what, in your, on your own, you won't ever accomplish what it is that God's calling you to do, but you're not asked to do it on your own. They were speaking truth. And God said the land was theirs and it was going to be theirs. In fact, someday it would be theirs. And all the fear in the world and all the walls and all the giants and all the tears and all the murmuring and all the complaining would never change that. But Joshua always also recognized that every person under his leadership had the right given them by God to make that decision on their own. And as an old man, having conquered the land of Canaan, or at least the majority of it, having pushed across the river and the people now in possession, the promise that God had given them generations before, Joshua would quietly hand off the leadership of the people of Israel to the respective leaders of their individual tribes. And he did so in a speech that has this famous line, Joshua 24 and verse 15. He said, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, because Joshua recognizes the truth is that this is a personal decision, right? He and Caleb made a personal decision to walk differently than the rest of the people in their generation. They were rewarded for that, and God used them to be the leaders of a great victory. But he also recognized that not everyone has to choose that. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you're now living. You know, it's sometimes when people read through that text, they're like, it's a little fatalistic of Joshua, isn't it? No, he's just speaking truth. He's just putting the responsibility for the eternity or for their eternity in the place that it belongs. It's in the hands of those leaders, those individual fathers, those patriarchs. It's their responsibility to make that choice. But notice what Joshua finishes with. He said, if you guys want to know how I'm voting, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Paul said, hey, church, speak truth to one another. I love that statement out of Joshua. It's just full of truth, right? Hey, you guys can do what you want. You can serve a bunch of empty gods. But I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm following the Lord. In verse 26, Apostle Paul continues in that text of these five things that he's challenging us to do that are a part of a changed life. The first one is to speak truthfully with our neighbor. And the second, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, this morning, if we wanted to, I suppose we could preach an entire sermon on this, but we won't, I promise. The second thing that God calls us to is sinless anger. He said, I I want you to be angry. You can be angry, but you can't sin. There's really four kind of directives in this text. Be angry, do not sin. And the second is kind of a guide of how to do that successfully. 
And you know what? There's anger that's a part of the New Testament story. In fact, there's an anger that's a part of the story of the life of Jesus, isn't there? There's that that time when Jesus was angry, uh, when he went to the temple and he saw that problem where people were being taken advantage of in the name of religion. Mark the the third chapter lays that out probably as clear as anybody. And Jesus goes in there and he becomes very angry and he flips tables and he drives out the animals and he he, uh, drives out the money changers with a whip. Yet he was without sin in doing so. Hebrews, the, the fourth chapter, verse 15, tells us that Jesus was a sinless high priest. And so, so it can be done. We can become angry and not be sinful. And, and so let me just quickly outline this morning how that can happen. Remember, this is all set in kind of this background of, but this is not how you learned Christ, right? Paul said, I, I, want you guys to, I want you guys to accurately represent Jesus and how he lived in the world. There were times, there were seasons where Jesus got angry. So what does Christ-like anger look like? Firstly, we should be caring more about God's reputation than our own. I can't speak for all of you, but I know that a lot of times the things that make me angry are times when I'm made to look bad or my words are misrepresented. Or my intentions are, are, are kind of obfuscated for somebody else's advantage. Those are the things that tend to kind of get us. We feel like we're being taken advantage of and our anger flares up in that moment. But if you notice, when the people watched as Jesus drives these animals out of the temple and flips over the money changers' tables and everyone's running and scattering for cover, the people who are observing this whole mayhem say this. They say, zeal for the Lord's house consumes him. They never said, boy, Jesus is offended. No, that wasn't about Jesus. It was about the Lord. And everybody, including the guys that are getting whipped out of the temple, knew exactly what it was about. It was about the fact that God's reputation was being destroyed. That people were honestly coming to worship the Lord. And they were being ripped off by people who had a position of authority within the religious environment of that time. Secondly, sinless anger considers our faults first. If you have a disagreement with somebody and you're tempted to become angry, one of the really important things for us to do is to stop and ask ourselves the question, what is my part? Did I contribute to this? Maybe sometimes you didn't, right? And that's fine. If you didn't, you didn't. That's all great. But oftentimes, we maybe had, did, had done something first, or we didn't react to something right, or there's something that's left undealt with from years past. Jesus said that we have a commandment to remove the plank from our own eye, and then we will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. And I, I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. Make sure that you've cleaned up your side of the street, And then you can help somebody else become a better person. Most people don't mind when somebody who is themselves a Christ follower authentically steps in and says, hey, if you would like to follow Christ, I can give you some understanding of how to do that better. But most people are universally offended when somebody who themselves is not following Christ attempts to give other people spiritual guidance. Thirdly, sinless anger is grieved by evil. Jesus didn't flip the tables in the temple and then roll out of there and laugh about it. If you read through that whole section of of Scripture, you recognize that maybe it all comes together where Jesus in Matthew 23 says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks 
and yet you wouldn't come. Jesus was heartbroken that those kinds of things were happening in the house of the Lord. Jesus was crushed that evil existed in the world. Guys, it is good for us to be burdened, to be frustrated, to be broken by the wicked and evilness that's in the world. Some of you maybe went and watched a, a movie a few months ago, well, a couple months ago, I guess now. The Sound of Freedom was in the theaters. I think a lot of people probably saw that or heard about it, a movie about human trafficking in our world. And, and you know, I, I, uh, anytime I hear about anything about that, my stomach just kind of sinks. I get a knot. I don't feel good. And that's the way it should be. The thought of young boys and girls being taken, whether by force or because of their parents' ignorance, and sold into a life of perversion and sex slavery sickens me. And it should sicken every one of us in this room. There's a lot of things that should sicken us. Jesus was choked by the power of evil. Jesus' anger was just a consequence of the fact that he recognized it cannot be this way in certain places. Christ-like anger is governed by God. God's rules have to apply. That's what the Bible says, be, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, right? That's God's rule for anger, is, is listen, understand exactly what's going on, make sure that you respond in a thoughtful way, and if anger is necessary, make sure that it's necessary, and it's all about the right things, not about you. Number five, righteous anger can act swiftly when necessary. Sometimes I think we think, well, you know what, I'm just going to have to wait for a month or wait for six months or pray about this. You know what, guys? Sometimes it is appropriate for you just to step in and deal with things immediately, right? Things like injustice that you know is going on or abuse, whether it's emotional or physical or sexual, especially to a kid. Jesus said, if you hurt a little kid, it's better you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. And it's not that, that, that abuse is not forgivable, We recognize that all sin has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. But if somebody's in an abusive situation or somebody you know is abusing somebody, those of you who love everybody involved need to get involved immediately. And sometimes that's going to require a little bit of force, a little bit of anger, a little bit of this is wrong and has to stop. Adultery, persecution of the church, that makes me sad. If there's something we can do about that, we should do it. All those things require maybe a fast and urgent response. If you want to see love governed anger in operation, you can look at Jesus. He did it brilliantly. But we have three more things in a couple minutes to, to kind of take a look at the rest of the things the Apostle Paul called us to do in this text. Number three, he says, Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul said the first thing on that list is that we need to speak truthfully with our neighbor. The second thing is that we need to learn how to be angry, but not sinful in that anger. The third thing is that we need to become givers, not takers. Most of us are born into this world as takers. We always look out to see our advantage or what we want out of the situation. And Jesus came into the world and he set a very, very different example for us. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve others. And that's our responsibility as Christ followers as well. We're not in this world for it to work for us. We're not in this world to be comfortable, right? We're not in this world to enjoy what's going on around us. We're in this world to make sure that other people's needs 
are being met so that they draw closer to God, so that they have that same radical life change. They take off that old person. They're transformed by the Spirit of God, and they learn to walk with Christ as we walk with Christ. That's the goal. We are called to be givers, not takers. And in verse 29 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up as it fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The fourth thing on Paul's list is that the church in Ephesus should be people who are building up one another and not tearing down one another. And that that word that's in there is kind of an interesting, that word corrupting is a particularly kind of interesting word. Jesus used that same word when he was talking in his parables in Matthew, the seventh chapter or so, uh, about about the great catch of fish and about the good fruit and the bad fruit. And and, and the word bad right there is the same word that Paul is using, saying corruptive or corrupting. There's just some talk that does not produce the kind of effect that God wants to see. And I think this morning that we all know what that is. Because we've all probably opened our mouths and said those words before. Remember the 10 spies who went into the land of Canaan? God said, it's your land. I want you to possess it. Go check it out. They come back. 10 guys say probably very little, but 10 guys completely destroy a generation. Can you imagine with me this morning? Just just imagine for for a moment that all 12 guys came back and they all came back and said, look, guys, it is an amazing place. There's some big obstacles. There's some huge challenges. But God said, we've got it. Let's go get it. A whole generation may have been spared. But they came back with corrupting talk. They came back with empty words They came back with concepts that were not founded in the reality that when God has said, it's yours, it's yours. Our speech can be very corrosive if we're not careful. Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. I don't have time this morning and I'm not going to take time to talk about everything that we say, but I don't know that I need to. We're all grown-ups in the room this morning for the most part. We're kids that are probably as more perceptive than us as grown-ups. Complaining, arguing, empty talk. The Bible talks about those things for a reason. They cause corruption. They break down the good that God wants to accomplish in this world. Guys, I have to note this before we move on to the end. Paul immediately ties this with this statement. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Been in ministry for longer than I care to admit sometimes. (laughs) I've almost been 30 years in ministry. One of the things that really has bothered me often in ministry is when people have been working with somebody and the Holy Spirit has been transforming and changing their lives. And then they get in a conversation with a mature Christian who says something that is corrupting and they walk away from the Lord. That makes me sad because 
I know other people have invested in that person's life. People have been praying for them. People have been, have been working with them. But can you imagine how that makes the Holy Spirit feel? The Spirit of the living God who's been pouring into that person and somebody opens up blabbery lips and destroys the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't think, guys, that this is tagged on to the end of let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth accidentally. There's an old saying in Second World War that says, loose lips sink ships. Loose lips cost souls. And I think that's probably more important than the ships that sink. Paul does tell us what we ought to do in this text. He said, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only that, that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I'm not saying this morning that you don't deal with negative themes. Sometimes you have to go and talk to somebody. In fact, um, speaking in a corruptive manner uh, is, uh, is to, to do exactly, or to not do what God's called us to do. And we, we, if we're not telling somebody what they need to hear, if we're telling them what they want to hear, that's corrupting talk, all right? I'm not telling you guys this morning, we say everything's sunshine and rainbows. No, that's not true. But make certain that you know that the words that you're sharing with somebody are going to accomplish the ultimate spiritual purpose that God wants to see happen in their lives. As we close this morning, I'll close as Paul closes this section in Ephesians 4 and verse 31. He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you with all malice. It's quite a list. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ in God forgave you. In the end, Paul said this means that we become kind, not bitter. If you notice as you look around in the world, people tend to do one of two things as they grow older. They either become bitter or they become better. And Paul said as Christians, we're called to become better people. We're called to become kind people. He starts off this list and he says, look, we need to speak truthfully with one another. We're called to speak truthfully with one another. <laughs> he, he reminds us that it's important that, that the, the things that we do in anger are not sinful. Yes, there's occasions where we're going to be angry, um, but not sinful. He said we need to become givers rather than takers. The world's always, already full of people who want to take. It needs people, people who want to give. We're called to build up and not tear down. We're called to become kind and not bitter. And then he finishes in that text in a way that I'm going to finish the sermon this morning. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ forgave you. You look around the room this morning, you're looking around a room with a lot of people that are just people, right? And I would love to say, you know, all of us have got this figured out and we're never going to sin when we're angry and we're always going to be people who are speaking truthfully with our neighbor with the perfect amount of tact that we're all people who always give and we never take. And we're always people that build one another up and not tear each other down. But I would be lying to you this morning. You know that and I know that. So when our brother or sister slips in a moment of weakness, when they tear us down and 
maybe didn't think about the consequences of their words when they're constantly wanting more than they're giving. And we can become kind of bitter about that. Paul said, here's what you do. Be kind toward one another. Tenderhearted. Put yourself in that person's shoes. They're going through a difficult patch in life. They're not thinking right now. This is emotional. This is an emotional response. There must be something else behind the scenes that's, that's causing them to act this way. Forgiving one another because you and I were forgiven by the one who made it all. We're going to stand together and sing this morning. If you have a need, if you know that your life isn't where God wants it to be, maybe you've never made a decision to follow the Lord and we wouldn't want you to leave here today without making that decision. Maybe, maybe for some of us today, it's, this is just one of those kind of texts that kind of centers us again. And we say, Lord, I need you. <laughs> I'm ready to follow you better this week.